Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were at Caesarea Maritima, on the Mediterranean. But today we're headed about an hour south to probably the most unique stop of our tour here in the land of Israel. We're going to visit an old industrial park, and what we'll find after a hike in will amaze you. But for today's adventure, we're going to need some expert help. That's why we're about to meet up with none other than one of Israel's most incredible tour guides, tour guide Aaron Schaefer. Tour guide Aaron is an Orthodox Jew, rabbi, and Torah scribe. He really has a unique talent for bringing the Bible to life here in the land of Israel. And having successfully gone through the Ministry of Tourism's comprehensive two-and-a-half-year program, he's also a licensed tour guide. My family and I have been privileged to tour with Aaron on all of our trips to Israel, and I'm so excited you'll have the chance to experience one with him too. We're about to stop the bus briefly and pick up Aaron before we go off the beaten path to get to today's site. There he is, tour guide Aaron. Thanks for joining us here on the virtual voyage. Hi, Abigail. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm going to move to the back of the bus and hand you the microphone to let you explain just what it is we're on our way to see. So guys, welcome to the Hartuv industrial zone. You may be wondering why I brought you here, surrounded by all of this construction and factories and industrial buildings. And we're about to get off the bus here next to this big pile of rubble. You can see that they've recently been moving a lot of dirt here with uh, bulldozers. And you're probably wondering, tour guide Aaron, where did you take us? What are we doing here? I thought we're on a tour of the Bible. And here we are in all of this mess. I promise you that if you stick with me and you're ready to climb up over the rubble and through the thorns and climb over the stones, you're going to be very happy that you came along on this journey. And I think that you're going to agree with me by the end that this is one of the most amazing biblical sites that you have ever seen in the land of Israel. Well, tour guide Aaron, we are just arriving as close as we can get to this stop. The bus can't go all the way in. We're going to have to hike a little bit, but lead us to the spot. Okay, follow me. So we have to start by climbing up over the rubble here. I'm sorry about any uh, mud you might get. I hope you're wearing good hiking shoes. And just watch out for the thorns because uh, they're everywhere here. But uh, we're going to hike through the field and follow me until we get to the shade of the large tree where we can sit and introduce this site. Well, Torquette Aaron, let's go ahead and sit down here in the middle of this industrial zone and go ahead and take out the Tanakh and read us the story and explain the significance of what it is we're standing here at. Okay, so we're standing here now in a patch of what's left of the fields of ancient Sorah. As you can see today, it is surrounded by the industrial zone and the construction. But because this is an important historic site and it is preserved by the Israel Antiquities Authority, 
this little patch is left of the ancient fields of Tzora. Now, if we look up above us, we can see the mountain, and atop the mountain, there is an archaeological site called Tel Tzora. Tel Tzora is the original location of the biblical site called Tzora. In the English Bible, it's usually spelled Z-O-R-A-H, like Zora, but in Hebrew, it's pronounced Tzora, and that's the pronunciation that I'll use. And when we open the book of Judges to chapter 13, it starts by telling us that there was a man of Tzora from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoach, and his wife was barren and had not given birth. And the story tells us how an angel appears to Manoach's wife, who's left unnamed in the story, and tells her that her son is going to be a Nazarite from the womb, and and therefore uh, he should never cut his hair, he should never drink wine, he should never become contaminated by contact with dead bodies and some other things that the angel orders uh, Manoch's wife. Manoch's wife tells her husband, and he's skeptical, and he prays to God to return uh, and tell him personally the instructions uh, for this boy. And God answers Manoch by sending, uh, by sending the angel back to his wife. And here is where we get the first specific piece of geographical information in the story. We already know that the story is happening in the area of Tzora, which we can see from here on the mountain above us. Um, but now the Bible gives us a little bit of more specific information when it says, um, God heeded the call of Manoach, and the angel of God came again to the woman when she was sitting in the field. But Manoach, her husband, was not with her. So we now know that not only does this story happen somewhere in this general area where we are near the ancient site of Tzora, but it actually happens in the fields of Tzora. So anyone who knows anything about the ancient settlement in the land of Israel knows that uh, cities were usually on the top of mountains. They were usually walled. And even uh, people who didn't live in cities who lived in open villages, it would usually be on hilltops, which are defendable. And the low-lying areas, the valleys, were used for the agriculture outside of the cities. And so if we want to look for the fields of Tzora, where this story is pointing us, we should be in this area, right here where we're standing in the fields below the ancient city of Tzora. Now, you might ask me, tour guide Aaron, maybe it's the field on the other side of the uh, mountain, and there are indeed fields on the other side of the mountain. But the fields on the other side of the mountain are exposed to attack by the Philistines because from the other side, you have a view clear down to the coast all the way to the Philistine cities of Gaza and Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gat, and Ekron, which were the five uh, major cities of the Philistines. And the other side of the mountain is essentially the end of the Israelite settlement. So it's really hard to imagine that a Israelite woman would be uh, out by herself, uh, undefended, farming the fields on the other side of the mountain. So we really should be looking for this story on this side of the mountain. And here we are really as close as we can get to the uh, city of Tzora in the field. So if we want to look for the story of this angel appearing to Menuach and his wife, we really should be looking here. So if we continue to read the story, we might find more geographical information that will give us 
a better chance of finding exactly where the story happens. So as the story continues, of course, the angel appears to uh, Menuach's wife while she's in the field. And the woman hastened and she ran and told her husband. And uh, she said to him, behold, the man who came to me that day has appeared to me. And Menuach got up and he went after his wife. And he came to the man and asked him, are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. So Menuach has a discussion with the angel where he asked him what uh, should be the behavior of this child. And the, the angel basically says, do everything that I said to your wife. You shouldn't drink wine, should not come in contact with anything impure and so on and so forth. Of course, should not cut his hair. And um, Menoach uh, says to the angel, I want to honor you by slaughtering a kid goat, a goat kid on your behalf. And the angel isn't sure if Menoach is saying to him that he wants to slaughter it like because he thinks he's a holy man or a prophet and he wants to feed him and make a festive meal or or perhaps Menuach knows that he's some supernatural being like an angel or maybe Menuach thinks he's a god with a small g for example and he wants to slaughter it in sacrifice to him so the angel says to him if you detain me I shall not eat of your food and if you wish to prepare a sacrifice offer it up to the Lord and then the Bible tells us that, of course, Menoach did not know that he was an angel. And so Menoach goes and uh, slaughters the kid goat and prepares the meal offering. And he begins to place it on the altar. And this is where we get our next bit of information. Because the Bible says something really interesting about this altar. It doesn't really call it an altar at first. It says, Menoch took the kid goat and the meal offering. He brought them up on the rock to the Lord, the rock to the Lord. And the angel performed the miracle as Menoch and his wife watched. It happened as the flame rose from atop the altar to the heavens. The angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And Menoch and his wife were watching and they fell upon their faces to the ground. So we have here something really unique, which is, Menuach offers the sacrifice on an altar, but the Bible doesn't call it an altar. At first, it calls it a rock. And here's where the Hebrew becomes really crucial to understanding this story properly. Because in Hebrew, we have many words for, for rock. Here in the Middle East, we have a lot of stones. You know, they say Eskimos have many words for snow. Here we have many words for rock. And there are three words which are most common. The simple word for a rock like that you would pick up, that you would build something with, is called evan in Hebrew, evan. Um, then you have, let's say, the bedrock that you might quarry out from the ground or you might build something upon the bedrock. That's called in Hebrew, sela. And then you have the word which is used here in this story, which is tsur. What is tsur? Tsur means an outcropping of the bedrock. It's a large rock which sticks out, which is visible even from a distance, but it's firmly attached to the bedrock. It's not movable. So such a piece of rock is called sur. And here in the Hebrew, it says that Menuach offered the offering al-hatsur upon the sur, which is this outcropping of bedrock. So here we are. We are in the general area where this story happened. 
And what we should be looking for is a tzur, a large outcropping of the bedrock, which is also an altar, or as it's called in Hebrew, a mizbeach. And of course, that would mean that it should be square and it should have a ramp going up uh, to get to the top and it should have a ridge going around it for the person doing the offering to stand on the ridge while he brings the offering. So let's go see if we can find it. Okay, so here we have something really amazing. Take a look at what we're standing in front of. Here we have a large piece of stone. It's protruding from the ground. It's maybe about uh, four feet tall. And it's carved out in a rectangular shape. And we can see here the ledge that goes around, just like you would expect from an altar. And you can see that one side of it is sort of broken down and uh, it it's not with the full square shape. That's clearly damage that happened later, but it's uh, really easy to extrapolate that it was once fully square. And if you take out a compass, you'll see that the four sides of this altar are oriented to the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, just like the later Israelite altars were, including the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's really amazing, first of all, to see such a thing. This is an altar carved out of uh, sewer bedrock here in the area of the tribe of Dan of Sora. And that alone is really, to me, something amazing and unbelievable. But there's a lot more to this story than just uh, this. I want to tell you about a researcher of the land of Israel named Yosef Breslavi. He lived around 100 years ago. And uh, he was born in Eastern Europe, and he emigrated to Israel with his family as a young man. He fought in several wars and, uh, and survived uh, the Nazis and uh, came back to the land of Israel. And ultimately, he became a scholar of the land of Israel, of history, archaeology, and so on and so forth. And one time he was researching in this area, and th at that time there was still an Arab village in this area called Sarah, retaining the biblical name Tzora. We often find that the Arab names of the places in Israel retain the ancient biblical names. And while he was hiking this area, he came across a farmer, what they call in Arabic a falakh, who was walking through the field here, um, actually planting wheat here. He was using it as a field just as it was used in biblical times. And he's walking uh, through the rows with the plow, and his wife is following behind him, dropping seed in the rows. And he describes in his book how, in his imagination, he said, here is Menoch and his wife come to life out of the pages of the Bible. And uh, he's watching from a distance, and this farmer gestures to him to come over. And he comes over to the farmer, and the farmer says, I want to show you something. He takes him by the hand and he brings him to this very stone that we're standing in front of. And he says to him, Hada Madbacha Manoach. This is the altar of Manoach. Now, uh, Yosef Braslavi was really shocked because as a scholar of Bible and history, archaeology, and so on, he knew that this area is the area of ancient Sora, and he knew the story of Samson and the altar. Um but for someone to point to a particular stone and tell him this is the one took him a little bit uh, by surprise. 
he started to inspect it and he could see that it's clearly carved as we can see. And uh, he started to do further research. And in his wake, several people have researched this altar. And based on what they found, all who have researched it have confirmed that this is an altar used for sacrifices and libations dating back to approximately the period of the judges 3,000 years ago. So what we have here is, um, to summarize, we are in the area, which is definitely the area of ancient Sora. We are in the fields uh, adjacent to ancient Sora, uh, definitely in the general area where this story of Menuach and his wife and the angel take place. Within that field, we are at one of the only outcroppings of the bedrock that could be defined as Sur, and this piece of Tzor is carved out as an altar, and the researchers have confirmed that it's an altar dating back to the period of the judges, and the Arabs who lived here before 1948 had a tradition calling it the altar uh, of Menuach. I should point out that almost every altar ever discovered in the land of Israel is not carved out from stone, but rather it's built of many, many stones. And this is one of only, I used to say only two. I, I recently found out that there's actually a third one that I wasn't aware of, but it's one of three uh, altars anywhere in the land of Israel that are carved out of bedrock. There's this one. There's another one in a place called Givat Harel next to ancient Shiloh. And there was a third one discovered in ancient uh, Sebastia or Shomron uh, that was carved out of bedrock. So this is a very rare phenomena. So when you take all of uh, all of these pieces of circumstantial evidence and you add them up, I can't say 100% that this is the altar of Manoach, but I think it's a really strong case that this is the altar. And even if it's not, this is definitely an altar which was used by the tribe of Dan 3,000 years ago in the area where Manoach and his wife lived and where Samson uh, was born. So that's something I wanted to clarify. Manoah and his wife were Samson's parents. And, and what is the significance of Samson growing up here? Yeah, so, of course, the angel is coming to uh, tell uh, Manoah and his wife that they're going to have a son who will be uh, a very unique character who's going to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And that's why uh, the angel gives all of these uh, special restrictions because uh, this boy is going to gain his spiritual superpowers from his Nazarite state. This Nazarite state gives him uh, a sort of spiritual upgrade that gives him these superpowers. He has uh, supernatural strength. And uh, after he's born, the Bible tells us that the boy grew up between Sorah and Eshtaol and the spirit of God resounded in him. And so really the story is telling us that as a boy, he really stayed in the Israelites area between Sorah and Eshtaol, which is the area where the tribe of Dan lived. That's the two main cities of the tribe of Dan at this time in history. And as long as he stays between Sorah and Eshtaol, everything is, uh, everything is nice and good. And he's a righteous young Israelite boy. But then uh, in the next chapter, we have Samson going down to Timnah, which is really the beginning of the drama of the story and the beginning of him becoming enmeshed with the Philistines. 
And even though uh, when you read this story and you see how he goes and he marries several uh, Philistine women and actually all of this leads to his uh, downfall in the temple of the Philistine God with his eyes gou gouged out and he commits a sort of suicide attack bringing the pillars of the temple down and with it killing thousands of people and himself. Um, and you might say, okay, this Samson really, he messed up and... Uh, and he's, a, he's a, a story of a sort of failure spiritually. But the Bible tells us that really all of this was orchestrated by God to enmesh him with the Philistines so that he would have a pretext to take vengeance on the Philistines without incurring the retribution of the Philistines back on his people because they saw him as a sort of crazy person who's doing it for his own reasons of his own uh you know his own drama with his girlfriends and his wives and they didn't see it as a nationalistic attack of the israelites against the philistines the book of judges says that samson was a nazirite he could have no wine or strong drink but wine would have had a significant place in ancient israel and including here at zorah what does this all say about samson and his childhood yeah, so when you come to this area and you you uh, you experience the the realia of the place and uh, you see how the agriculture was done and how the lifestyle of people were, you can get a lot of insight into this story of Samson. You know, uh, on a side note, anyone who reads the Bible the Hebrew Bible will see that it's constantly giving geographical information and it's constantly referencing the agricultural cycles and the, the festivals and uh, the, all the life cycle events that people were involved in. And I've always thought that um, this information isn't here just to tell a better story, but rather the Hebrew Bible was given to the people of Israel who are living in and are supposed to live in the land of Israel. And the Bible, I think, really assumes that most of the people who are reading this are familiar with these places. And so I think this geographical information is a kind of layer of commentary within the text itself. And so I really believe that when you come and you visit the sites where, where the events happen in the Bible and you pay attention to the surroundings and you're aware of the historical context, then these... Uh, geographical prompts in the text actually add layers of insight. And this is a perfect example. If we hike around this area, we'll come across many, many wine presses. And we'll understand that uh, creating, producing wine was an important part of the economy here, but it was also an important part of the life cycle of the people. You know, ancient Israel was an agrarian society. Uh, people had to farm First of all, for subsistence, to have what they need to eat for the year. It wasn't like today. You can go to the supermarket and get whatever you need once a week or every several days and restock. In the ancient agrarian society, you had to farm during the seasons those crops which could be grown based on the rainfall, the sun, the length of the day. And then you would store them and preserve them throughout the year. And then through most of the autumn and winter, when nothing significant was growing, you were utilizing what you grew during the during the agricultural season. 
So the agricultural cycle in Israel, it's a long and difficult cycle. It starts with the first rains in the winter. It could be December or January. You start to get the first serious rains. And as soon as you get the first significant rain, the first thing you do is you go out and you plow the wheat fields. Now that the ground is soft, you plow the wheat fields. And then when you see the clouds are gathering and you you believe that it's likely to rain again soon, you run out to the field and you plant the wheat kernels in the field. And that in itself is a kind of act of faith because you're taking a certain portion of what's left over from last year's harvest that you could eat and make bread with, and you're throwing it in the ground in the hopes that it's going to rain enough to cause it to grow and in the hopes that it's going to survive any kind of um, infestations, any kind of uh, blight or whatever. And you you plant and you basically pray to God that it will grow. And then over the course of the winter and the beginning of the spring, it's the wheat is growing higher and higher. And towards the end of the spring, around Passover time, starts the wheat harvest. And the wheat harvest, as well as the bar barley harvest, the wheat being more food for people, the barley being more feed for the animals. And you harvest the wheat and the barley over the course of the period between uh, Passover and uh, Shavuot or Pentecost 50 days later. And at Pentecost, you basically have completed the harvest of the wheat and the barley. And you uh, you you are out in the field with your entire family with the sickles, uh, cutting it and binding the sheaths. And then at the end of the day, as the wind comes, you're winnowing the wheat to separate the wheat from the shaft. And then you're bringing all of the wheat into your storehouse for the whole year. And this is what's going to uh, make your bread for the whole year. And it's a hard and difficult process, a lot of sweat, a lot of hard work on behalf of the family. And think about it, after you spend all these months of planting and sowing and harvesting the wheat, you want to uh, celebrate, you want a reward. And so what's your reward? You get to have a fresh loaf of bread, which is very nice, but it's not really, it's a little bit anticlimactic, really, after all that hard work. But then the real reward comes, which is after the spring, as the summer goes on, the word for summer in Hebrew is kites. And the literal meaning of kites means the ripening of the fruits. Ripening of fruits in Hebrew is called kites. And so summer is the time when the fruits of the trees become ripe, and including pomegranates and figs, but most importantly are the grapes. Because grapes, you harvest them, and you can do a lot with them. You can dry them into raisins. You can uh, squeeze the juice and boil it down to a kind of syrup that is like honey that can be used to sweeten your food throughout the year, and it's um, and it stores very well. But most uh, commonly and most importantly, you make it into wine. And wine was really, really important in the ancient world. It was uh, used with almost every meal. Uh, you know, water sources were not always completely uh, safe to drink from. But if you mix, let's say, 10% of wine in with your water, so uh, it kills the bacteria that could be in the water, makes it safe to drink, makes it tastier. And so wine was really, really important in the ancient world. And it was also used to celebrate festivals and Shabbat, the Sabbath, and so on and so forth. So the wine harvest is really what's called the batsir in Hebrew. Every, By the way, every kind of harvest has its own name in Hebrew. And the name for harvesting wine is batsir. So when you have the batsir, the grape harvest, 
it's like a big festival. All the families come out to the vineyards. And for the weeks of the batsir, of the grape harvest, everybody actually lives in the vineyards. You build tents and you live there because you want to guard the grapes from wild animals now that they're ripe, from people stealing them. And also the pressing of the grapes has to be done on location. You cannot carry grapes away from miles and press them elsewhere because if you load up a wagon with grapes and you start traveling to another location, all the juice is going to leak out. They're very sensitive. So the wine presses have to be in the midst of the vineyards. And so the whole family moves out to the vineyards for several weeks every day. Early in the morning, they start to cut the grapes, put it in baskets and carry it maybe a few hundred feet over to the wine press, which is a sort of indentation, a big square indentation carved out in the bedrock, in the cellar. And all the family will take off their shoes, wash their feet and start to dance around on the grapes. And this is very important that you press grapes in this way because when you're making wine, one of the most important things is not to break the seeds. If you break the seeds, uh, the wine will become bitter. So you want to squeeze the maximum amount of juice out of the grapes without breaking the seeds. And so the best way to do this was by dancing on the grapes. And you might have uh, one family member sitting with a flute or a drum on the side, singing songs, uh, beating out a beat or playing the uh, melody to keep everybody uh, dancing and enjoying the harvest because if it's fun, it goes uh, better and it and uh, the, the time passes quicker. And just imagine during these weeks, uh, everybody is eating grapes as much as they want because when you're in the vineyard, you eat the grapes. Everyone's on a sugar high and uh, people are drinking the fresh squeezed grape juice. And in the old world, people didn't get a lot of sweet, really. We're used to eating sweet all the time in ancient times. Sweet was really something very special. So this was really the most special time of the year. It's the really the end of the whole harvest season that started in the winter and maybe January. And now here we are in September or even October. And now we're going to go into a sort of dormant period where there's no agriculture uh, again until next uh, winter time. And uh, it's, a, it's a kind of celebration. Everyone's camping out. Everyone's dancing, there's music, you're eating grapes, you're drinking the grape juice, and uh, Samson can participate in this. He's there to plow the field after the rain. He's there to help plant the wheat in the field. He's there to do the brutal hard work of harvesting with the sickle, bending down and breaking his back. He's there to do the hard work of winnowing uh, the the grain from the shaft and he's there to uh, drag the heavy jugs full of wheat kernels into the caves underneath the house but then when it comes the fun part the bitsir the sort of harvest festival of the grapes he has to stay far away because he's not allowed to eat grapes or drink grape juice or eat raisins and certainly not to drink wine so when you understand this aspect of Samson's childhood, you get a little bit of insight into who is this person. He's, uh, he's a boy who has uh, supernatural abilities. He has uh, a spirit of God in him, both spiritually but also physically. 
He's very strong. He's probably very handsome. He's got long, wavy hair because he's not allowed to cut his hair. And uh, the funnest time of the year when all the young men would would be in the field with their families and with their neighbors and, and having a great time and celebrating the, the conclusion of all their hard work, he has to stay home. Judges says that the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And Torgad Aaron, you've made a great case that this altar we're standing in front of right now is indeed Manoah's altar from which the angel of the Lord ascended. But, you know, we're standing here in an industrial construction zone, and it looks like the altar is kind of getting dangerously close to being the next thing bulldozed. Is the state of Israel aware of its significance, and are they trying to protect it? That's a very good question. So if you look at the altar, you can see that there is some number painted here with yellow paint. Um, This altar is registered by the Antiquities Authority as a protected site. Actually, I heard a story from the tour guide who brought me here for the first time when I was in the tour guiding course back in 2010, I think it was, 2009. And he told us that he remembers that uh, when they were expanding the industrial zone here, some bulldozers were coming through this area and they almost bulldozed this altar, actually. Uh, You can see that it's standing here almost like on the edge of a cliff because the bulldozer cleared very deep right up to the line of where the altar is. And the original plan was actually to clear all of this out, including the altar. And the story that I heard at that time is that a random hiker saw the bulldozers and said, are you sure you're allowed to bulldoze here? There's this stone with these numbers on it. It looks like it's marked as something significant. You should check it out. You might get in trouble. And they looked into it and realized, oh, that's true. But they didn't even think about it because they saw this as their property and they were just going to bulldoze it. So there's no doubt that even though it's technically registered as an antiquity site, as long as there's no awareness about it, it is in danger. And actually, I've brought thousands of people here over the years. And every time I come with a busload of tourists and I get off and I take them hiking through all these thorns, To get here, I'm worried that I'm going to take them here for nothing because we're going to find that it's no longer here. Aaron, thank you so much for leading a wonderful tour at Manoa's Altar here in Sora, the home of Samson. If people are interested in learning more about you or even touring with you on their own trip to Israel, how can they do so? So you can find information about me and my website, tourguidearon, A-A-R-O-N, tourguidearon.com or also on Instagram uh, or Twitter at TourGuideAaron. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel.